In a few weeks, we're going to start a series on the life and ministry of Jesus, and we're going to do that from the Gospel according to John. It will take us approximately 17 years. It's... <laughs> It won't. I'm actually a fan of going faster than slower oftentimes. Uh, I think the older I get, maybe we're running out of time. But anyway, looking forward to that. Uh, the Gospel of John is in some ways super simple. In some ways it's super complex. It's dicey. It's spicy. It's encouraging. It's offensive. Uh, I once heard a pastor say, why in the world do we tell unbelievers to read John first? He's like, it's like the most in-your-face predestinarian sovereignty of God in the whole Bible. Are we just trying to run them off? Anyway, so it's just, it'll be, it'll be great. Um, I'm encouraged, motivated, intimidated all at the same time, and I kind of like to be that way as a pastor and as a Bible teacher. So I think that uh, the 11th of September will be the launch date for that. So Jesus is coming. Um, but then it's always the question, what do you do in the meantime? I like to do miscellaneous things we haven't touched on, we need to touch on. So uh, not today, but probably next Sunday, if not the next, we'll do something on what it means to be a stranger and an alien as Christians. Because First Peter talks about us being strangers and aliens, and I like to do this now and then. I like to do it especially around election time. Um, what does it mean? It's borrowed from the Old Testament where, where Israel is not in their land. Okay, they're exiles. They're strangers and aliens and they don't belong where they are. And yet they have responsibilities to their God amidst all the false gods. And they have responsibilities to other people, even people who aren't like them. And so I, I want to revisit what that looks like um, for our sanity's sake, um, for encouragement, to address the issue that uh, so many of us feel, and that's like, I, I don't think there are good options, and I don't think I belong here. Well, guess what? Ultimately, you don't. And so, um, just want to remind you of those kinds of things. It'll be a sermon about politics that's not political. I won't mention a party, I won't mention an individual, but I'm just going to try to help you as a Christian think through how you think through all of these kinds of things, because you don't ultimately belong here. And so it's normal to feel frustrated, weird, irritated, all of the above. I should just preach it now, but we won't. We'll be in First Peter, okay? But I feel responsible as a pastor to do that. Today what I would like to do is talk about hope. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Romans chapter 5 again. Uh, we'll talk about hope because someone I know and respect and uh, lead a household with said, how in the world can you preach on faith? and love, and not hope. So, um, that's what my wife said. So I thought, well, that's pretty good advice. Uh, we just did a series on faith. Last week we talked about love, and uh, we should probably talk about hope, because faith, hope, and love go together. And uh, we're going to talk about hope today. It also is fitting, because recently we looked at Romans five twelve and following, which is super deep, deep into the pool theology, which is so interesting because it comes wedded in, to Romans 5 to 11, which is about the practicality of what it means to be united to Jesus. In life, here and now, as you suffer, because you have hope. Okay, So we're going to talk about hope today, but it's in the context of as your life is not so good sometimes, as it's awful at times, as it nears the end in time, 
as you have emotional struggles, relational struggles, persecutional struggles. That's why Romans 5, 1 to 11 is in your Bible, because it helps you understand what hope is. Now, hope is one of those things, like faith and love, they're misunderstood, right? Really misunderstood, because we don't know our Bibles very well, and we certainly live in a culture that doesn't understand a biblical worldview very well, and so we don't really know what faith is, we don't really know what love is, we don't really know what hope is either. At least in English, everyday language, hope generally has doubt built in. Think about it. Not always, but, but oftentimes it does. In this sense, hope isn't very doubtful. If I say to you, I hope you have a good vacation, more than likely you're going to have a good vacation. I mean, there are those duds. I mean, there are those zingers where crazy things happen. But generally speaking, if I say, I hope you have a vacation, there's not a lot of doubt there because you're not going to have to go to work. It's vacation. You're probably going to go somewhere else where you don't, maybe don't have to do the laundry and do all the other normal yard work kinds of things. You're going to go somewhere new. You're going to read a book you've been wanting to read. You're going to see the ocean or whatever it is. If I say, I hope you have a good vacation, it's pretty likely. It's not a guarantee, but it's pretty likely. But if I say to you, I hope you get that job. You might get the job. You might not get the job. Right? Some doubt built in. Yesterday I was at a bicycle race and I said to someone, I hope you do well in your race. Well, that's just a nice thing to say because I actually know he hasn't really been training much and uh, doesn't have a great track record, but I said, I hope you do well in your race. Lots of doubt built in, right? If I say to you, I hope you win the lottery. Tons of doubt built in, right? I mean, I hope I win the lottery. It'd be awesome. I can tell you all kinds of things I would do with it. It helps if you start playing, but I hope I win the lottery. Wouldn't it be awesome to win the lottery? It'd just be great. Tons of doubt built in. But I'm just trying to make the point, the way we normally use it, it might be a wishful thought. We're wishing someone well, but there's typically doubt built in, at least some. When we talk about hope in the Bible from a Christian perspective, Romans chapter 5, it's not, it doesn't have doubt built in, okay? Hope is tied to a definite reality. Okay? Hope is more along the lines of certainty. Yes, it has future in view, but hope is more of a certainty kind of thing in the Bible. In fact, it is a certainty kind of thing. And not just because I hope so, not just because Christians are dumb and they base their hope of the future based upon nothing. No, that's not how it's used. In the Bible, in Romans 5, hope is a view toward the future with confidence, with certainty, not based upon nothing, but based upon the fact that God promises, God promises and God has a good track record of keeping His promises. Oh, and guess what? It's based upon a historic certainty. Okay? It's called the empty tomb. Okay? Jesus came to earth. John is going to emphasize that. He was really here. He really did things. He really taught things. He really was crucified. 
And He really rose from the dead. And He really... I'll stop after this, I promise. Really. (laughs) And He really, genuinely, truly did what He did on behalf of those He represents. And He's called the firstborn, first resurrected among many. Okay? And so when in Romans 5, you have hope amidst suffering even, so that you could even have rejoicing, it's based upon reality. Okay? So it, so it motivates us. It causes us to rejoice. It causes us to see things the way it should be seen amidst your physical, emotional, relational, spiritual struggles. Theology matters in your life now and in the future. You've got to get this right. You've got to get this right. Okay. Enough of that. Uh, let's close the service in prayer, right? That's like a long sermon introduction. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Romans 5, 1 to 11, and just walk our way through. But notice certain things like rejoicing. You can have the right attitude even though your life might stink. And sometimes, and eventually it's going to because it's going to come to an end. You have the right attitude, right perspective, not because you're thinking happy thoughts or positive thoughts based upon nothing but because of what God has done in Christ. Let's go ahead and start working our way through Romans 5, 1 to 11, okay? Here's how we're going to survive life in a broken world. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, summarizing Romans 1 to 4, really. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, in the context, faith in Christ, not faith in faith, not faith in self, Therefore, having been justified, okay, legal term, courtroom term, God is the judge in this sense. He justifies you. He declares you obedient to Him. He declares that you have loved Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you've loved your neighbor as yourself, even though you haven't. Okay, so you're justified, not just innocent, but successful, you've done, you're, you're an uphold, upholder of His law because you're trusting in Jesus. Therefore, having been justified, no, not you might be, therefore, having been justified because of the historic, real work of Jesus, by faith, by trusting in Him, not in yourself, okay? We have, not we might have, or someday perhaps, no, we have present reality, peace with God, through our, notice just so we don't miss, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through Him. It's not through yourself. And notice it's not we have inner peace. You might have inner peace. This is peace with God. So your biggest problem has been your God problem. God has been your biggest problem. And you don't have a problem with God anymore because He doesn't have a problem with you if you're trusting in His Son. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So, I mean, we should be able to stop right there and you you should be able to have a better life. Okay? So no matter what happens to you, your biggest problem is taken care of. Now, a lot of times people don't know. They're like um, one of the prophets uh, who say, peace, peace. Where there is no peace. So that's why Romans 1 to 3 really had to make it clear that, that you might think you have peace with God, but you don't. Okay? 
But, and that might be true of you. Read Romans 1 to 3, right? Ready? Go. No. No one has peace with God in and of themselves because we're all broken. We're all sinners. We, we, we've all... Enough of that. You get the idea. This isn't fake peace. This is peace based upon real atonement, real work, okay? We have peace with God. Then verse 2, through Him, through Jesus, we have also, Paul's going to keep doing this, also, it's just like piling on all these great, rich, wonderful things. Through Him, we have also obtained, if you're into grammar, it's using a certain form there that it's, it, it has happened and it will continue to have effects. It will continue to last. We have also obtained, we have because Jesus' work is done, but, but it has ongoing lasting effects for us. We have also obtained, and we will keep obtaining, if you will, access. The imagery he's using in the ancient world would be, you get to go in before the throne, before the king. We have obtained access. We can go before the monarch. We can go before the sovereign. We've obtained access and we will keep access, not as intruders, read Romans 5, enemies. No, we have obtained access. We can go before him, not cowering in fear. Notice how it happens though. We've obtained access by faith and it's faith in Christ. Representative, into this grace in which we stand. Same form used for stand. In which we stand now and we're going to keep standing. Not cowering, not running in terror, but we stand before Him. It's awesome. We're welcome there is the idea. Because Jesus has been our invitee, if you will. He's, he's, he's ushered us in. He, he's, he's led us in there. Peace with God. We stand before Him. The God of gods, Lord of lords. This is amazing. Into his presence chamber. Verse 2. And we rejoice. This is to make us happy. This is to make us confident. This is, to, this is positive. And, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now we don't know what that means yet, but, but whatever it is, this is good. Right? I mean, this right here should, should help you keep your problems in perspective and we haven't even gotten to the application stuff yet. I mean, if I didn't have peace and now I have peace and I'm there and I get to stay there and it's going to be lasting, this is great. This is not saying your problems now aren't real. They're real enough. He's not denying that we have problems. He's going to talk about suffering. Not fake suffering. It's real suffering. But it's temporary. We rejoice. This is great. This is awesome. Problem solved. And the hope, the confidence, the, the sureness. Yes, future, but it's It's sure. As you will see, it's tied to what Jesus has done. But do notice, to get a little, not technical, but we need, to, we need to work on this a little bit to make sure we understand, that it says, in hope of the glory of God. Sounds good. But 
at first read, we're like, I, I, that's good, but we don't, we don't have any idea what that is. And I think it's worth just taking a, a moment or two to say, it's worth knowing what that is. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, the glory of God could be used just super generically, okay, that, that, that God in His greatness, he can, he can show His greatness. Well, the Bible says God's glory belongs to Him. He and He alone should be glorified ultimately. And you know what? Everyone should rejoice in the glory of God because He's God. As, sinner, as a sinner, I can't rejoice in the glory of God because if I don't have a representative, I'm in trouble. It, he would still be glorified if He gave me judgment because He's God. But rejoicing in the glory of God? Nah. I'd be bugged at the glory of God. I, I would hate the idea of the glory of God, especially if I get what I deserve. But he's talking about believers, and this is something we, re, we rejoice in. Now, as believers, we can rejoice in God acting like God and God glorifying himself, and because that's good and that's right. But I want to suggest to you that that's not what he means here. Because Romans 5 to 8 come as a unit. Okay, I'm not making this up. Other commentators who have PhDs in such things, given their whole life to studying the book of Romans, for example, in original language. It's a unit. See it this way. And it's bracketed at the beginning, talking about the glory of God and hope, with chapter 8, the, the end of that section, glory of God, hope. And I want you to see in chapter 8 what it is. What is this glory of God? We're rejoicing in, yes, the glory of God. We have hope amidst our suffering. What is it? Let's go ahead and see it in chapter 8. It, it, I promise this is worth it, okay? And we're all looking for ourselves in the Bible because we, we have our best interests in mind and you're going to find yourself there, okay, if you're a believer in Christ. So I'm appealing to your selfish interests. <laughs> not necessarily selfish, right? You're concerned about yourself. God has made us that way. So, if we keep the, the unit together, hope of the glory of God, we rejoice in that. What, what is he talking about? Romans 8, 18 and following answers the question. And then I'll summarize. So, verse 18, or should I tell you ahead of time what we're going to see? No, let's keep going. Verse 18. For I consider that the suffering, he's talking about that in chapter eight, chapter 5, of this present time are not worthy comparing with what? The glory, oh, okay, there's, there he is carrying out his theme. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Still hasn't answered our question, what is this? But, but it's talking about the same thing. What is it though? Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing, for the revealing of the sons of God. You could draw a line under the glory that is to be revealed to us in verse 18 and verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God, because he's talking about the same thing. Don't take my word for it yet, but you're going to see. What is the revealing of the sons of God? It is the revealing of the children of God the way they're supposed to be as human beings. Okay? He's talking about God... God's glory, yes, in glorifying us. To use another word, in perfecting us. So we're broken, we suffer, and then we die, right? As the bumper sticker says, life sucks and then you die. Some truth to that. Because suffering and then death. 
That's not the way God made it. But the first Adam led the human race into sin, and then they're suffering throughout the world, and it's terrible. So we've been longing and waiting, the whole creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, the glorification of believers because of the last Adam, as Jesus has called, and there isn't going to be any more suffering, and because of resurrection, it's going to be perfection, glorification, we call it as Christians. We're waiting for that. We rejoice in the hope of that. That your body isn't going to hurt anymore. And people aren't going to hurt you anymore. Okay? That's what he's getting at in Romans 8. There's no question about that. Let's keep reading in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the, ha freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's the freedom we're waiting for to act like real human beings were originally created to be. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. See? Eager waiting. Hope is the idea for adoption as sons. Here's another way of saying glorification, the redemption of our bodies. Resurrection. It's usually what Christians give the label glorification to. We, amidst even suffering, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in glorifying us, perfecting us, And if you have any doubt, then at the end of chapter 8 and 29 and 30, he's talking about the same thing. How about 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, this has been the plan all along, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Ah, think about resurrection, right? Think about perfection. To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ah, he's raised, he represents us, and so we're going to be raised. It's glorification. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So when we go back to 5.2 and we read, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, we know what he's talking about. The glory of God in the glorification of believers. Long way to get there. Maybe you would have just taken my word for it. But I want you to see it. We're just getting started. Now, not timing-wise, but goodness-wise. Now, the mention of the S word, okay? Verse 3, back to Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice. I mean, we rejoice, but not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings counterintuitive, don't like suffering, you're not supposed to like suffering, people who like suffering are weird. We're not called to be masochistic, we're not called to, oh yeah, let's just do it again. No, no, no. But in the midst of it, we can rejoice because we know how it ends. We have confidence in how it ends. Knowing, notice, that suffering produces endurance, 
We can, we can see how there is a positive effect. So when you go suffer on that jog and you can only go a block, the next day you can go two blocks, the next day you can go three, you get the idea. I mean, that's just common sense. There's, there is some benefit in this kind of suffering because it produces endurance. You kind of understand more the longer you're a believer that God is actually using it for good. And endurance produces character. It's a settled kind of endurance. You're able to do that and understand it and maybe even help others. And character produces... Hope. And hope does not put to shame. I just want to pause there for a moment. Hope does not put to shame. Christian hope does not put to shame. Other hope puts to shame. Maybe even cross-reference in your mind the Apostle Paul when he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no bodily, physical resurrection, Christians are the biggest idiots on the planet. But there were actually people, even in the first century, who were saying, well, we don't necessarily have to believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus, because even if it didn't really happen, we're good people. It's good morals. And the Apostle Paul locks and loads and says, you're an idiot. If there is no bodily historic resurrection, then put to shame. But the argument here is, our hope is a hope that is not shameful. Because our hope in the future is based upon real historic reality in the past and it affects your life in the here and now for perspective. It's sensible. Well, let's keep going then in verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts, great imagery... For, for it's been shown, it's been experienced by us, and personally so, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the work of the Son. So the Father has this plan, like in Ephesians 1, and the Son comes to do the redemptive work, and the Spirit applies. So we have the Spirit, and if we have the Spirit poured out by God, then, then we can experience the work of Jesus, and it can be personally experienced. How's that for perspective? How about verse 6? For while we were still weak, as in incapable, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That would make sense at least, even if it doesn't happen. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, we're still Rejecting Him, Christ died for us. And once again, I, I want to remind you, this awesome, rich, valuable theology is in the context of trying to help you amidst the hard stuff. God has loved me like that. Okay, biggest problem solved. Now, problems that are actually huge problems can at least be tempered and have give, give me perspective. At least my biggest problem's been solved, and it's been solved wonderfully because of God's love for me. Perhaps it even helps when no one else seems to love me. How about verse... Where are we anyway? Verse 9? Yeah. Since therefore... We 
have now been justified. He picks it up again. By his blood, it's a done deal. Much more shall we be saved. Remember the Bible talks about saved in past tense, saved in present tense, saved in future sense. So how awesome is justification? Because we have been justified. Well, he keeps going much more as if it could get better, but he just does this to help us see all the multidimensional value of God's work for us. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Isn't that interesting? We're saved by him so that we can be saved from him from the wrath of God. Biggest problem solved. But that also means our future is certain. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now, He does it again, He keeps doing it, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. I think He's talking about resurrection life, given this context of glorification and what we're looking forward to. It's astounding. It's meant to be astounding. It's meant to have you say with boldness, not because of what you've done, but with boldness, I rejoice, I can rejoice, I can rejoice in anything. Now I know by the time we put our keys in the ignition, we're going to forget all this stuff. So we'll be back to talk about it next week. I mean, it's just what happens. But it's meant to help you in the here and now by looking at the future. And the only way you can look at the future and have confidence about it is actually if you look at the past and have confidence in Him. It's pretty good, huh? I'm going to have, like, have my, tonight, seriously, the older I get, I'll be sitting there and my hand will be like all mangled up. And I'm like, what? i got a cramp in my hand. Somebody will say, yeah, because you preach like a crazy person. <laughs> I want to do everything I could possibly do to, to, to at least have you see. This is, this is extraordinary. Notice I didn't say incredible. One of the reasons why I love people to go to Israel, by the way. I haven't done a plug for Israel lately. Um, and you don't need to go there, by the way, to be a Christian and, you know, be fulfilled. It's not like, what do they call it when you do like these journeys of faith where you, uh, you have to, what do they call that? A pilgrimage. I'm not, I'm not calling for that. But I, I do like it when people go, not so that you can read the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other and, you know, try to figure out all these prophecies and what I do like is at least a good dose and a good reminder that when the Bible talks about these things that Jesus has done, it, it didn't happen in fantasy land. It didn't happen on the North American continent, like one religion says. Jesus wasn't hanging out with the American Indians. Okay? There's, there's a good reason why there's no archaeology to kind of prove some of those things because it didn't happen, okay? It's not Middle Earth. It's not Narnia. Uh, it's not Branson. <laughs> 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 
real place. Real history. And that real history matters to you now because it's the only way you can actually have Christian hope for the future. Empty tomb. Doesn't get any better. I guarantee you the sermon next week will be worse. (sighs) Romans 5, I mean... If you just want to guess what I'm going to talk about every week, well, I guess he's going to preach Romans 5 again. Um, Not really. Now I don't know where I am, so I'm just saying ridiculous things. Um, So, let's go to verse 11. More than that. Like, stop! Right? He just keeps saying stuff like that. More than that. Piling on. More than that, because there's so many great things about this. More than that, verse 11, we also rejoice, he's doing it again, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Much more, verse 9. Much more, verse 10. More than that in verse 11, we have reconciliation. So all these amazing dimensions of what is true for you if you're trusting in Christ. It's grace upon grace. There's nothing better. It's a complete salvation. Hope for your physical body. Hope for your emotional state. Hope for your spiritual state. Hope for relationships. You want hope for the environment? Yeah, read Romans 8. The creation can't wait for the glory of God to be revealed. Because it's all going to be fixed. Maybe one text in closing, you don't need to turn there. But Isaiah chapter 53, where it talks about by his wounds, you are healed. That's not a verse for the charismatics. Okay? They're far, far... And so stop being afraid of it. Okay? For years, I was afraid of that verse. I'm like, man, they got, it. They got us on that one. I've even read a book that's all about healing that basically basically writes it off to mean something that it's not. By his wounds, another way of talking about the the work of Jesus on the cross, the work of Jesus in, in its entirety in Isaiah 53, by his work, you are healed. It's not talking about you getting over one leg longer than the other so you don't have any lower back pain anymore. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about temporary, you used to have this problem and now you don't have this problem anymore. You're still going to die. You're going to get something else, right? It's not talking about that. 
It's speaking in very definitive terms. By His work, wounds, stripes, you are, are, not will be, are healed. It's simply saying what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, having been glorified, perfected, but you haven't been. Yeah, but because of what he's done in history, it's as good as done in the future because he's already been raised from the dead, so that's why you should trust him now. And it gives you hope, so to the point where you can rejoice. I said finally, I'll say finally one more time. This does not mean that you should all of a sudden act like everything is always good when it's not. It's not good to have pain. It's not good to suffer. It's not good to die. All of these things are because of sin. And so it's okay for you, as someone made in God's image and who understands these things, to say, these things aren't good. And yet you can rejoice because you know it will turn out good because it has turned out good. You see? It's tempered. You're able to see things as they are and how they will be. It's extraordinary. Rejoice. Rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your son, for his work. Thank you for the spirit that allows us to even understand these things. And certainly you use your Holy Spirit to apply these things. And we're grateful that we can have rejoicing amidst difficulties, suffering, because of what is to come on our behalf. And so I pray today for my, my friends who are here, my fellow church members, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in one way or another, we're all suffering and facing challenges, some more than others, that you might supernaturally work in their, their lives and their hearts and their families and the church family to thoughtfully, carefully, lovingly encourage them with these realities. May they be the things we're quick to think about and quick to remind one another of not in a trite way with thoughtlessness, but with care and concern. Thank you that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he has ascended, that he is our high priest, and he represents us, and he will one day come again for us. We're grateful for these things. Sustain us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.